guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation. This is an exciting episode. We brought Dr. Courtney Howard, who is a legend when it comes to planetary health. And I can't tell you how much I learned hearing her throw down on this episode on the importance of thinking about our environment and how it's impacting food delivery, nutrition, overall health, respiratory illnesses, all ties to our environment. And I was extremely motivated to bust out this episode, especially seeing the impact of our forest fires right now in British Columbia and in Ontario. It's a constant reminder that we really need to think about how our actions are impacting our environment. Dr. Howard also, we got to chat about doing advocacy work. Like She's clearly been uh, a star when it comes to planetary health, but just we also talk about what, you know, the young upstarts can be doing to contribute to advocacy, whether it is in planetary health, whether it is in systemic racism, any kind of uh, large scale topics where we, we feel like we can make a difference. It's going to be hard not to feel motivated after this episode because Dr. Howard, let me tell you, is straight up changing that boogie. Anyways, before jumping into it, if you haven't chucked out solving wellness, y'all got to jump on the train. This is our way of dealing with clinician burnout straight up. We're just providing online fitness classes, yoga, nutrition tips, cooking classes, mindful meditation, all of the above, creating a community of healthcare providers supporting each other, solvingwellness.ca. You guys are going to love it. $99 for the year, $9.99 per month if you prefer that. And check it. First month is free. All right, guys. Without further ado, Dr. Courtney Howard. Quadcast Nation. We have a special episode. We have the one and only Dr. Courtney Howard, TEDx speaker, advocacy lead, queen of planetary health. I don't know if I can say that, but I'm saying it. I'm saying it today, yo. And, you know, I am truly honored to have you on the show because you, you're a legend. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Can, can you do all my intros from now on? <laughs> that was amazing. I, 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 I would, it would be a privilege, honestly, with your credentials. Courtney, I, I, it's great to, to have you on the show. We got to finally meet at one of these chats that we had with the University of Ottawa medical students. And we got to talk about advocacy, which was amazing. And we'll get to. But 
maybe tell us about your journey into planetary health, because this is not a common, you know, area of discussion within medicine. So how did we get there? Yeah, great question. It was a complete accident, really. I was a new doc. I, I come from a kinesiology dance background. I thought I was going to be a sports medicine doctor. And mm. I did, though, want to work for Doctors Without Borders. And when I graduated from emergency medicine, I went to their website and said, okay, if you want to work for us, you have to go north first. You have to go learn what it's like to work in a remote community with different culturally diverse populations. So go do that. So I started booking locums up in Inuvik, which is north of the Arctic Circle. And on one of them, I was literally running through the Edmonton airport and I realized I didn't have a book. And it's quite a long plane flight. And it was December. So I was heading into an Arctic winter and I was thinking to myself, I better have a book. So I grabbed the first book that I saw really And it was about the oil sands and climate change. And I thought to myself, well, I don't know anything about this. I should, you know, to feel more like an adult coming out of a decade of basically living in a study carol or in a call room, because I didn't, a lot had happened in that decade. And I was like, where, where did all those new countries come from? And (laughs) climate change seems important. Maybe I should learn something about that. So I picked it up and I read it. And one thing, you know, the critical care training does teach you is to recognize badness, to be quite Mm. good at recognizing badness. So by the time I was done this bar, if climate change had basically moved from sort of peripheral information, David Suzuki saving the salmon to, oh my God, I'm going to do a lit review. And it happened to be right after The Lancet had put out its first commission on climate change, which said that climate change is the greatest global health threat of the 21st century. Mm. So there I was in Inuvik. I'm using the computer in the Emerge right before a shift. And I'm thinking to myself, how did McGill Emergency Medicine and all of my training at UBC miss the biggest health emergency? I just finished learning about this stuff. And so that was really, I was lucky to go straight from there down to the Family Medicine Forum in Calgary, where I was speaking with a mentor, uh, Konya Troughton, who listened to me sort of wave my arms uh, excitedly and worriedly and said, you need to meet my friend Warren Bell. And he, she walked me right over to the Kate table, the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment table. So I was really lucky that right after my sort of climate awakening moment, I was hooked right into what turned out to be the exact right organization for me to be working with. So I sort of showed up at the table. I was introduced to Warren Bell, who's one of the co-founders of Kate. And he said, well, why don't you sign up? I said, I want to do something. Mm. So he's like, okay, well, you know, he's taking me in long-term family doc is quite good at, at eyeballing someone and uh, said, well, why don't you, you know, if you show up at our board meeting, you know, you might end up on the board. So I did. I, I went to Toronto at the appointed time, didn't know anything yet, really, mm. um, but did end up on the board. And so that was about a decade ago, and it's been a process of learning ever since. Wow. I, I like the, the go-get of, of, of all this. You see as an issue, and you're like, I'm taking this head on. And, uh, and it's, it's crazy when you think about it, too. It's like thinking about how much is impacted from planetary health, like how large of a scale, and it's not, and you kind of alluded to this too, it's not like we're getting taught a ton of this in medical training, in residency. Um, so to be honest with you, Courtney, I'm planning on learning a lot right now. Um, 
So give us a sense of the scale of the problem. Um, and um, you also did some work with the MSF. So like, give us a sense of either what you saw or, or just on paper, the, the level of, of, of issues here. Yeah, so I happened to be having that that moment in Inuvik, which as I tur- as it turned out is actually one of the most rapidly warming places in the world. So it wasn't one of these times where you look up and no one else is worried. It was one of these times where you look up, you talk to an elder and they say, "Oh yeah, the ice is forming way way later. Um it's making it tough for us to go hunt safely, which is really significant because food is super expensive expensive up there. Mm. And so food from the land, fishing, hunting forms a really large proportion of people's lean protein. So it was already, uh, according to Health Canada, having food security consequences, cultural sharing practices have been altered, decreased uh, safety of going through uh, basically icy areas. There was a study that came out that showed that uh, wintertime drownings are increasing. Just recently, the first international study came out. Um, Lots of mental health consequences that I don't think we talk about enough. Um, There's this word, solastalgia, which means feeling homesick when you're still at home. And it was first used uh, to describe some of the feelings uh, in Australian farmers who are watching their soil kind of dry up and blow away. And in the north, where Elders will tell you that when they were growing up, um, there were no landslides. And what that is, is a permafrost slump. So basically, when the permafrost melts at the bottom of a hill and it's exposed, it just sort of dissolves. And then the whole hillside comes tumbling down. And, you know, trees uh, for a while here in uh, Yellowknife, the doctor's garage band was actually called Drunken Forest. Because what happens when permafrost <laughs> sort of melts, the trees tip over. And so we thought that was a good name for the garage band. So in the north, <laughs> you, know, you got to have a bit of a sense of humor, right? <laughs> so in the north, things are, you know, very, very, uh, we're warming at triple the global rate. So wow. I haven't talked to a climate change denier since I got up here. It would be like saying that it's not sunny when the sun's out. Mm. And in the South, uh, you know, unfortunately, since I started doing this about 10 years ago, things have, you know, the case has gotten easier to make because people are sitting in wildfire smoke all the time. Mm. So I actually just finished a study on that up here. We know we, we saw twice as much asthma in the emergency department over a two and a half month period in 2014. And you can imagine our population is not that big. So over two and a half months to show an actual doubling of visits for asthma, Hmm. that's not insignificant. And we did a qualitative study that also asked people how it felt to be living in smoke for that long. And so there were all of these uh, impressions of isolation, not dissimilar really to what we're going through right now with COVID. Um, as well as a lack of physical activity, which we know has its own health consequences. If people aren't getting out and exercising, it's not good for cardiovascular systems or mental health. Lack of connection to the land, uh, loss of benefit of connecting with nature, and a real feeling of, what does this mean for my kids? Mm. Which is sort of a sentiment that we now have words for, eco-anxiety, ecological grief, and, and I think that the more we start to talk about that as we're seeing increased Lyme disease and heat stress and heat stroke and the potential for conflict, famine, et cetera, um, it brings emotions up in all of us that aren't pleasant. And I, I view it as now not unlike what we see in ourselves or in patients when people get a new diagnosis. Man, and, and like he- hearing it 
strung out like that, it's it's pretty intimidating. Like, it, you know, whether it's up north and, um, you know, the impact on, ecolo- on, on ecosystem, on mental health, um, asthma, um, you know, hearing about the, you know, overall people's well-being, like all these elements, like it's it's pretty mind-boggling how how much this can impact our our health and to, and the scale of it all too. Um, and as you're here, as you're saying it, it, it just, <laughs> I mean, not to be Debbie Downer, but it just sounds like like it seems overwhelming, and like it just seems like you know, it, it doesn't seem like the rate of these changes are like it doesn't seem like things are slowing down. So, like, do, did you? Is there something? Like, what's your impression about what we could do? Because, like, you know, it, it, it's clearly it's clearly an issue. But whether it's individually, whether it's societally, societally, I don't even know how to say that word. Society, uh, government, like, what are our options? And w- do you think it will it would make uh, an impact? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And so you're right, it is big. And what, what I've come to realize is really what indigenous uh, populations and people have told us for forever in that the ecological determinants of health, I think about it like a nest now, so a planetary health nest. So the underpinnings, the foundation are things like soil, water, the climate, biodiversity. And if that's really stable and things are going well, we have the opportunity to have financial systems, social systems, uh, you know, other kinds of uh, ways that we organize ourselves. And that gives rise to the social determinants of health, things like housing and education and income. And if that's going really well, we get to make a high income country health system, um, which we know, according to studies, is responsible for about 20, 25% of overall health outcomes. And so what I've come to realize as a doc and partly influenced by work overseas where, you know, so when supply chains aren't intact and you don't have the medications or the saline that you need in order to do your work, you realize that the work we do in the hospital is utterly dependent on a functioning ecosystem and society outside of the hospital. So for me as a doctor, I am doing this work partly because I really, really love being a doctor. And I like it when I go to work when the the medical cabinet is full of the things that I need. And I think we've seen with COVID that, you know, supply chain disruption has a huge impact. And so this is a really interesting learning moment for us in terms of, okay, so now we've lived through a planetary health emergency. How can we apply some of the lessons we've learned here? to addressing this other planetary health emergency of climate change. And so I look at it in terms of two sprints. At this moment, we have an adaptation sprint, which means we need to make a plan so that we can cope with the warming we've already signed up for with the greenhouse gas emissions that we've already let out into the atmosphere. So there's a report put out by Environment and Climate Change Canada about a year and a half ago now that shows that basically, regardless of what we do now in terms of emissions, we're going to be about 1.8 degrees Celsius warmer as a country in, by the time a child born today is in their 20s than we were compared to a new baseline that they established between 1986 and 2005. So, you know, I do a lot of media around wildfires and almost every single time I get a question where they say, okay, so, you know, this is a horrible smoke emergency. We just had to evacuate this town, et cetera. Dr. Howard, is this a new normal? And every single time I have to say, 
no, this is not a new normal. We are still riding the curve and we are going to be higher in 2040. And we need to take that into account. We need to make sure that our hospitals have the ventilation systems that they need in order to cope with wildfire smoke. We had to close our operating room for a couple of weeks up here in uh, during the 2014 summer because our OR um, couldn't cope with the smoke and the air quality in there was wow. horrible. Wow. And we saw that also in Australia um, during their wildfire uh, emergency just prior to COVID. There were babies being born into, you know, suites with, that had horrible particulate matter. So on a really practical level, we need to be able to make sure our hospitals are cool enough to keep people healthy during a heat emergency. We need to make sure we can filter out this wildfire smoke. We need to take a good look at our supply chains. And, you know, the more I've been looking at this and also observing what's happened during COVID, the more I think we need to really consider what are our essential medicines and how can we make sure we make more of those in Canada? Because wow. as we can see, you know, it's, it's no fun not to have what we need. And we've already had, uh, you know, a lack of really essential medicines. Remember a couple of years ago, um, you know, there was that lack of all the anesthesia drugs and everybody yeah. was having to substitute Yep. So our, our for-profit system has already shown us it's, it's not providing a safe and healthy supply, and we can anticipate further disruption. So let's not be naive to that. Let's make sure that we can do things. So there was actually a cool article um, that came out, I think it was in BMJ just this week, and it was proposing, look, like we need to consider things like corporations, like publicly owned corporations, which we could actually connect to a new PharmaCare program. So say we got PharmaCare and we had a national formulary where we've already defined for ourselves that you know we need X, Y, Z medications as priorities. And because we're buying it as a single payer, we know how much we need. Well, how about you know we take the ones we think are the most critical and we make a crown corporation so we can make sure that those are made in Canada and we're good. So those are the adaptation-related things that we, we, we need to do. And then meanwhile, there's the mitigation. So mitigation means decreasing greenhouse gas emissions. And we need to do those emergently because most people think that we can probably adapt to this 1.8 degrees of warming, you know, in a reasonably healthy way. But if we don't get off the high emissions pathway that we're currently on, by, that by the time that same child, so one of today's newborns is in their 60s, we're going to be 6.3 degrees Celsius warmer in Canada. And people use various words to describe how that will look. Uh, Nick Watts of the Atlantic Canton on Health and Climate Change said it will be catastrophic. Um, other, other versions of Lancet uh, documents have said that that puts civilization at risk. And certainly, it very much puts us at risk of overshooting tipping points, whether it's permafrost melt releasing methane or uh, basically melting of Arctic ice, which then instead of having a reflective white surface that bounces the sun's rays off, you have sort of dark ocean that absorbs them. So you get these positive feedback loops the more or less uh, remove the situation from our control. Just like, you know, when you see a patient, you know, there's that moment where you can, you can see that a patient's unstable and you know that if you act right then, so you get your fluids in or your pressors in, you, before the rest of the system starts shutting down, you can pull them out of that spiral. Yeah, like we a, need to act right now, right now, so that we can 
hopefully act fast enough to stabilize earth systems before they get into that spiral and start to just, uh, you know, basically move into a level of dysfunction that becomes beyond our control, at which point we'll really be stuck just trying to do as much adaptation as, as strongly as possible. My God, I still, I still feel like my anxiety is still going up. <laughs> I'm hearing about this. Dear Lord. So yes, the adaptation, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like, it, you know, as you mentioned with COVID, man, like, you realize we got to be a more of a self-reliant community. We felt that with the PPE, especially um, there was even some talk, at least locally, that there was some concerns about some of the anesthetic too, um, whether we would have some, uh, enough stuff to, to keep our patients comfortable. But yeah, that, that's, that, that is definitely clear to me. What isn't clear to me in terms of like the mitigation is like what level of change do we need to see? Like what, like in terms of reducing greenhouse emissions, like do we need to drastically alter the way we do things on the day to day? Like how, in your mind, how does that look for um, reducing greenhouse emissions? Yeah, it's a good question. And it looks like a wartime response or a COVID time response. I mean, in a way, we've just learned that we can change the world super fast if we want to. And so we just did that. Uh, It wasn't fun, but we're here talking. Um, And if we can do this in a planned way instead of a reactive way like we did with COVID, we can do it in a smarter way that's less uncomfortable for people. So I'm actually just reading a book by Seth Klein right now that, that essentially looks at all the policies we had Um, for World War II and says, okay, hey, how can we use some of these same strategies to win what he's calling the good war of climate change? And so it, it looks like coordination between the public and the private sector. It looks like changing the structure. You know, I'm sure we both spend our fair share of time trying to counsel patients to do more good things more often. And that works, what, like 5% of the time? You know, you have your Yeah, you have your one patient who starts to exercise every day and the entire office knows about them by the time they're going home and everybody's cheering, right? So um, basically based on that personal experience as well as a body of evidence around this, our best and most useful things as docs is yes, to make personal changes in our lives to, you know, bike to work, eat less meat, fly less, et cetera. But moreover, it's to use our position as trusted messengers in society because we're usually near the top of almost any uh, survey of who's trusted and to ask for policy change. So one of the things I'm doing right now is actually coordinating an expert group process that's international for, do you know SMAC, Social Media and Critical Care? No, I don't know SMAC, but I feel like I should. They're cool. Yeah. Yeah. So they uh, used to, in the before times, um, have these really cool flashy conferences and, you know, are good at, at the communications element of, of this kind of work, which you are as well. And they essentially had a moment as a community. So it's a community of about 26,000 people worldwide with sort of tentacles everywhere that said, hey, I think we want to do more than work at the bedside. We want to change society as well to, to facilitate overall health. And they actually voted and decided that they wanted to do climate change as their first thing. And so they hired me, again, in the before times as a consultant 
to come up with a list of action items. They're like, look, doctors just want to know top three things. Tell me what to do. And so we're just coming to the end of that process. But what we realized is that if we can deploy docs around the world with sort of a top three action items, we can shift political will and markets. We can basically point the way and say, look, we think this is where a safe and healthy future is. And we are putting our money where our mouth is. And so we haven't finalized it, but it will be things like divesting from fossil fuels, reinvesting in uh, renewable energy and telling people about it. The messaging is important because that's what's telling policymakers where the votes will be, you know, next, next cycle. Um, switching to renewable energy on mass, because right now things are coming down in price so much that in most locations worldwide, it's actually cheaper now to have your next, if you're, you know, looking to, you know, light up a house with electricity, it's actually cheaper to do it in a renewable energy way than to, you know, supply a new subdivision with coal power, for instance, especially when you take the health impacts into account. So, you know, here in Canada, we've actually had a lot of success in phasing up coal power with a health argument in Ontario. Uh, they phased out the coal power plants with uh, health professionals as the, the sort of frontline people in all the media interviews saying, Hey, you know, I'm seeing all these kids in the emergency department with asthma. They're missing school. Their parents are missing work. It's causing us a tremendous amount of anxiety, illness, as well as cost to the system. How about we not do this? How about we make electricity in a way that is healthy? And it worked. So that was actually the most, uh, the single measure that decreased greenhouse gas emissions the most uh, that's ever happened in North America. And then we used essentially that same playbook um, to achieve the coal phase-out commitment in Alberta. And then about six months later, uh, my friend uh, Joe Vagpond, who I'm not sure if you know, he's the incoming president to Cape, he called me right before Christmas, right after we'd got this uh, Alberta coal phase-out commitment. He's like, Courtney, I think we need to go national. I was like, how about you eat some turkey, Joe? Like, do you want to have a small rest? And he's like, no, we need to do this. So there was a federal regulation, and so it's about finding the target where if you alter it, big things happen. And so he and uh, some people from Pemina had identified that if we could change the um, sort of allowed duration of life for a coal plant, we could ratchet back and really accelerate a phase out nationally. So we did it, it worked. And then the next thing that happened in the fifth and no third anniversary for this was actually yesterday was we launched an international powering past coal alliance Canada with the UK at the international climate change negotiations. And I was actually honored to speak on behalf of the healthcare sector there. And so that has now, because humans are social animals, right? Mm. Whatever's cool, we kind of like. And so that has helped to coalesce. You can actually draw a scatter graph of what people's policies were pre-powering past coal alliance and where they are now they're all coalescing around what is now an international norm and so leadership matters the health voice matters we can achieve huge things and so we're really excited about launching this new initiative and we're going to launch it with a contest um nice. where we're going to ask people to tell us their story of what worked so that we can all start to do it because for so long, we've had these commentaries that say, you know, this is horrible, woe is us. But when you look at the movement building literature, that's not what works, right? It's, it's case studies, the same as it is in clinical work. You know, if somebody mm -hmm. tells you, well, I gave this med and it worked. Okay, well, that's a way better change making strategy 
than to say, I really hate this disease. It's awful and all my patients are dying. So mm. we're trying to apply what we know from clinical medicine to change making. And the great thing about it is that doctors are super action oriented, learn fast. Healthcare workers in general do. We're used to working with multiple disciplines. We're used to working in a space where we don't know everything, but we act anyway. And so I actually think it's, it's really exciting what we're going to be able to do. And especially if we decarbonize healthcare as well, in the midst of COVID, the NHS, NHS in uh, the UK has hired the smartest person I know, Nick Watts, to lead a team of 28 people with the goal of decarbonizing the NHS by 2040. God damn. Do you hear this, Quadcast Nation? This is exactly what I'm talking about, changing the boogie. Courtney, like at, at so many levels, like we're talking about obviously creating like a, an immense amount of change, proving the, the outlook for our, our kids and our kids' kids and the outlook of the planet, number one. Number two, really having that framework for creating change. Like you, you really 80-20 this thing. Like, hey, let's, let's talk to docs who are going to be able to uh, – that are uh, a loud voice. Hey, let's focus on coal, which would give us like uh, another huge bang for our buck and scaling that up from province to, to, to national to international levels. Like this is what I'm talking about. And this is, this starts with a conversation This starts with picking up a book, kids, picking up a book in the, in the Edmonton hashtag, yeah, no, yay, yay, yay. Yeah, yay! Uh, airport and um, and look at look at the, the level of change and and this is uh, I just I get chills just thinking about all that you've been able to do and this was only ten years ago you started this journey. My God, um, like I'm I'm speechless. It's it's gotta like. Do you look back at this and just say to yourself like, holy cow! Like what a whirlwind! Like especially when you thought, hey, I'm gonna be you know, I did kinesiology. I'm going to be teaching kids out of, you know, in the world of uh, sports health. But holy cow, Courtney. Like, I mean, I had no idea it was at this level. Wow. Yeah. Well, thanks. And, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was lucky to get in on the ground floor and sh show up. Like, this is something that's more difficult to do in person now. But, um, you know, in terms of change makers showing up, <laughs> Amazing what happens when you show up, you know, and you kind of just like smile your way into a room and listen and introduce yourself to people afterwards. I, I just ended up meeting. I was super lucky. I met the people I needed to meet and doing the work, you know, and creating some space in your life for that. So whether that is, you know, shortening your commute, if you have the ability to, small towns are great for that. You know, I live in the middle of nowhere. Well, that's, oh, I live in the middle of a giant, we're 1600 kilometers north uh, of Edmonton, but it's an 11 minute drive to the hospital or a 20 minute bike ride. So that saves me a heck of a lot of time. So if there's a way of uh, sort of making your life circumstances a little bit simpler um, to create the space in your life to do this work, it's tremendously rewarding. You know, I'm working with different disciplines all the time. I'm learning constantly. And what's super interesting, actually, is I've come to the belief that really communications are the limiting factor at this moment. So what you're doing, uh, the skill set that you're, you're developing and encouraging, that's what's absolutely required. Because 
we have the research we need to point us in the right direction. I love what you said about we have to 80-20 this thing. I think I'm going to quote you because you're absolutely right. That's so well expressed. Um, and I think we, we know how to do that. Uh, yeah. what, I've, what I've seen is that, you know, people learn. I, I, I know that there were people in my med school class who are smarter than me, you know? So if I can accomplish what I've accomplished, I keep thinking about all these other people in medicine. Like if we dedicate ourselves to this, and I think we have all sorts of reasons to, because A, our ability to do our work the way we like to do it depends on us getting the situation sorted. And B, we have that uh, really felt knowledge, I think, of what it's like to watch a, a living organism spiral out of our control. And I certainly know that that drives me at a very deep gut level. Mm -hmm. um, it, we've been humbled. We've been humbled because we work with living systems every day. And we know that there's only so much we can do. And I think that when we apply that to the broader natural world, it, it lends a, a heart and an intensity to our work that really reads uh, in the people that we're speaking with. Yeah, that's so well put. Like I, I just, you know, not to be too repetitive, but just the idea that, you know, you can be this advocate. We, we can all do this, uh, a level of advocacy work. And, you know, that, that chat that you, you were on with John as well, uh, talking to the medical students, that, this is the first time it occurred to me the scale of impact that you truly can have. Like, one, like I, of course, it's not just one person. It's always a team. But, um, but one person being a, a part of it or taking a, being a contribu uh, considerable contributor to any level of advocacy, um, it truly is inspiring. And I, I, I just want to make sure that the people listening realize that it could be them. It could be them that can be that. Like, for us, we do a lot of stuff on, you know, COVID, anti-black racism, and all that, all that, and but it, all it takes is one. And and I think some of the things that I'm hearing from you, Courtney, too, is the idea of, you know, don't need to be the most talented. You don't need to be uh, the smartest one in your class, but have that drive. And my, my personal bias with productivity is don't think too hard. <laughs> I don't know if you feel the same way, but like there's a lot of paralysis analysis within our profession. You know, like we want to get it right the first time. We want to get it perfect. And my philosophy in life is just do it. Learn fast, uh, fail fast. And the fact that you've had some action is going to lead you more forward than you would be if you were sitting in the corner just thinking about your next step. Yeah, 100%. Because the view changes once you've taken that step. You can see around the corner a little bit more. You're hearing something different. And mm -hmm. the and the inputs change the minute you move. And so, yeah, I think that that's really important. Something that I've really come to understand is that courage is probably the major limiting factor. And so I've thought a lot about, okay, well, what are the components of courage and how can we lower that barrier? And so something that I think I, you know, I've asked a lot of the elders uh, here and also internationally, what's kept you in the game for this long? Uh, Elder Francois Paulette, who uh, has been a huge mentor to me here in terms of sort of grounding me within an indigenous knowledge base. When people were yelling at me when I went to medical conferences, say, why are you even here talking about this? I'd, I'd come home and be like, well, 
is this a bad? No, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he read that Lancet article, right? I'm pretty sure this is important. And Francois would would say, "Keep going, Doc." So that solidarity and that support was incredibly important to me. And I've heard that same message from so many people. So Robin Stott, who helped to start the uh, climate change and health movement worldwide, he actually just wrote a letter in The Lancet about his uh, experience of getting arrested in support of uh, Doctors for Extinction Rebellion. Last time I saw him, I asked him to, and he said, it's been the thing that's kept him going. It's been the company of similarly minded, wonderful humans. And so the more we can have initiatives that purposefully create that sense of solidarity and collegiality, the less lonely people will feel. And loneliness is really, it's sort of like the kryptonite of the advocate. It, it's, it just becomes very difficult. And so if, if we can make sure we're creating the systems that reduce that sense of loneliness and then providing the skill sets, because when we look at the skill sets, even so you've learned the skill set of podcasting, you had to figure out which mic to use, which, uh, you know, how to set it up, remember to press record, you know, uh, I had to learn how to write op-eds, how do you get a meeting with a decision maker, how do you do immediate, you're going to go for straight from here to a media interview, so how did you learn how to get your message across quickly in a way that's compelling? These are skill sets that can be taught, and so the more we can teach med students and other health workers, these skill sets, the more if they get a media interview request for to talk about what have you, their answer will be yes. And so I think it really solidarity and skill provision and uh, priority setting so that we're all speaking from the playbook, the same playbook, and we know that we're very much within the, the center of thought on the topic and we're not kind of feeling like we're out on a limb. I think those are a huge number of structural things that we can improve to help us mount a responsive scale, which is what we need to do. Man, I, you, just got, you just made me think, once again, just trying to 80-20 this bad boy. It's, imagine just, I don't know if it's a class or a course or a CMA-related course, but on just like creating that, creating advocacy. What is the framework? What is, what do you need? What are the skill sets? As you said, like, um, you know, the framework, having that confidence and having that circle with like-minded individuals to have that support. What are the skills to be able to, in that op-ed, in that media appearance, on that podcast interview, to, to be able to, uh, to bring about that message? You know, like a lot of beautiful things can happen when you have a lot of people that are, they, they have the sense that they could do it. Anyway, an ideal will percolate that I think you'll, you, might, uh, you might hear from me again after this regardless. Um, one thing um, I wanted to mention too regarding some of the climate changes, like a lot of the stuff that we see is, you know, or we mentioned is local, like especially, um, you know, with the, the forest fires, the, uh, you know, the, um, stuff that we're seeing up north. One thing I, I forgot to ask you about too is what about some of the international stuff? Like, cause you, once again, when you did, did your work with MSF, like did you have anything relatable or, or uh, that you saw that was direct impact on cl from climate change? So where I was, and it's interesting because I'm at a moment and I think the conversation's at a moment where we're really examining global health and planetary health in the context of conversations around equity. So, so the words in my head around this lately have been, how do we decolonize 
global health. Mm. And it really is tied into this planetary health argument. So at the time, I felt like the most useful thing I could do was to go overseas and provide direct clinical care. And I do think there's still a role for that. So I was in Djibouti, um, in which is a little tiny country in the Horn of Africa, super, super hot. Um, and re- basically relies on imports for food. So it was after a time when international food prices went way, way up and there was a malnutrition crisis. And so I was working in this tent ICU, resuscitating kids between the ages of six months and five years who had severe acute malnutrition. And so what that looks like is little humans with no immune system. And so you know, they get a cold virus, they get a life-threatening pneumonia, they have a, you know, a diarrhea-related virus, and they, they're at risk of dying of dehydration. They just have no buffer whatsoever. And so it was a lot of resuscitation. It was a lot of sepsis work, a lot of pneumonia work, et cetera, but we didn't have ventilators. And so you would get to this point where, and MSF has done a really good job of figuring out how they can have the most impact possible in these settings. Um, for with the resources they've got, but when you th- imagine trying to bring a ventilator to a tent ICU, it just is beyond what is possible in most projects. So they will have ventilators in the operating rooms, but almost no projects have ventilators for sort of bedside work. And so we didn't have those. And so I was a new doc and I had never had a child die under my care uh, before going there. So there I was about a week in, um, there was a little one who'd been okay the day before. He had kind of a complicated type of malnutrition, uh, the quashiorcork kind, which you end up with all these fluid balance problems. And so you're trying to figure out, is he overloaded or not overloaded um, without the types of tests we would usually use to help us figure that out. He'd seemed okay. We came in um, and he was unconscious. And we saw that he did have a low sugar. So we're, then we lost the IV and we're trying to get, um, you know, a new IV in. And of course he was dehydrated. So it was difficult to do that. We got an NG. In any case, we, we lost him. He died. Mm. He did ER. And so there I am. He was the first patient we'd seen that day. I was with a very experienced mentor physician from Niger, Modest um, Tamaklo. He was amazing. So he had been in that situation before, but I hadn't. So I was, you know, the, the bottom fell out of my view of the world. I'm on the ward. I'm swearing at the ceiling in English in front of all of my staff. And then I realized that I had to keep going. We still had 50 other critically ill children to see that day. Mm. And so you know, kind of took a couple minutes, um, said, well, this is where you are. You have to do this. And, and kept going. Um, that was my first experience. And my staff were so kind. They, they came up to me because of course they'd seen that before. And I remember there's this one young nurse who was brilliant, Suleiman. And he, he would come up to me every time we lost a child and say, Dr. Ici, on dit que le docteur soigne, mais Dieu sauve. So the doctor cares, but God cares. And so really my staff helped to carry me through that entire six months. But what I saw was that, you know, when the situation is, is set up not to favor health, you know, you can do your best to resuscitate beautiful little humans and you're, some of them are going to die. And so I came back from that, you know, trying to figure out how to live in a high income country as a privileged doctor, and which wasn't easy. And so I was going to ping right back to Pakistan uh, to go on a teaching mission. And then I got pregnant. So I was marooned 
So I had to figure <laughs> out a way to live here while knowing that that is a reality. And so what I ended up realizing was that if malnutrition is forecast to be the, the worst health impact of climate change um, this century, and meanwhile, Canada has one of the highest per capita carbon footprints in the world, if I have wanted to prevent malnutrition, I should stay home and work on climate change. Wow. And so that was sort of, yeah, that was how I started sort of, it, it lent a new level of focus to my work and intensity. And interestingly, when I'm listening to my friends uh, internationally, so uh, Renzo Ginto is a friend of mine. He just graduated from Harvard. He lives in the Philippines and he's really uh, spreading this message of decolonizing global health. It makes me realize that a lot of that involves us being here in Canada and making sure that with our trade agreements, uh, with our political policies, with our approach to uh, carbon, that we're taking care of business at home so that we're not causing harm elsewhere and setting up systems that are going to make it really difficult for people in other countries to live in a healthy way. And so that was the message. It wasn't a climate-related malnutrition emergency that I was working on, but since then there have been several. And so we can see that we're at this moment where, you know, it's easier for us really to pick up, like not address our lives here, go work somewhere else for six months and then come back. But really, I think decolonizing global health probably means that we need to really dedicate some of that same love uh, that we have for people all around the world to systems change at home. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a way of looking at things that's definitely influenced by where I live right now. I live in a part of the world that has been severely influenced by colonization. You know, every shift I see people who are residential school survivors or the children or relatives of residential school survivors, and it's impo impossible to overstate uh, the health impacts of that. And so how can we you know, honor Indigenous uh, experiences and wisdom here, uh, make sure that we import the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and live by that, live by the recommendations around health of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here, and how do we equally decrease the colonization of other countries uh, or the colonial attitudes that are impacting health there? So it's this very interesting moment where I feel like the conversation around equity is really coming to the fore at the same time as the conversation around climate change at the same time as we're in this acute COVID moment that's saying, hey, you guys better get your act together because you might not get another good chance at this. Um, and I think it's a hinge moment in human history that's really giving us a, an opportunity to pause and reset and think about how we want to approach the rest of our lives. Wow. It's <sighs> so many amazing take-homes there. Just, you know, it, it, just that story, first of all, uh, Courtney, just putting things in perspective, how, uh, we, how we can live our lives here, how that could impact the kids around the world, or people around the world that are, that are struggling, that are um, malnourished and so forth. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to forget that story for a while. Um, and also come into that realization in your own life that, you know, I, I probably could have a bigger impact here locally than going 
from, you know, being into Pakistan and, and what have you. Um, I mean, just ha- going through that process, I, I'd imagine it would have been uh, a challenging one, um, coming to that realization. Um, but and also just emphasizing, like what you said, like this, this is a different time. COVID is, has, I mean, so many th- lessons from COVID that, you know, we could, we could embrace innovation. Uh, we could really create change in a short period of time. How even our footprint, even our carbon footprint during this time, if you think about it, like I live in a government town where like a lot of people are working from home and I'll tell you my commute to work has been dramatically improved. Yeah, and just so many lessons there, but but thinking of COVID as a reset in so many ways of saying, hey, look at how we're approaching a lot of our lives, health, everything, and maybe this is the time to 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 think about things and, and alter the way we do things. Um, it's just a great great perspective and a great lesson there. I want to ask her. You know, one of the last thoughts I had is. In general, do you have hope? Are you optimistic about the future? Because once again, when, when you when we mentioned how dramatic of an impact these the climate change can have in our our lives and, and and our children's lives and future generations, it's it feels ominous. But you, as uh, someone that's been doing all the advocacy and and, and yeah, have your fingers and fingers and. I was going to say fingers on the pulse. I guess that's an expression. I mix metaphors all the time. I'm horrible. Well, I don't know why I was thinking about in the soil. Um, are you optimistic about the future? So, you know, when I went into Emerge, and I'm not sure what drew you into ICU, but I, I went into Emerge thinking I was going to save a lot of lives. And if I'm honest with myself, I think my presence was uniquely, has at this point in my career, been uniquely uh, contributory to maybe three or four people not dying that day. Totally. I, yes, I could not agree more. You know, and, and so, but however, I have helped a lot of people have a better Tuesday, you know, through not puking or not being anxious in the middle of the night. And I think those are wins. And so say, you know, we even take a look at COVID, like it would have been better to not have had a global pandemic. (laughs) But I think that the people who are in the hospitals who've managed to, you know, maintain their their PPE supply, who had a really good plan in terms of being able to, you know, upregulate their number of ICU beds and to staff it all are feeling a lot happier right now than the people who have been combating, you know, decision makers, who haven't wanted to listen to evidence-based decision making, who didn't have, hadn't thought ahead in terms of that uh, supply chain. And so to me, this is all, there's a huge spectrum here. I, I think that there's a tremendous, like, you know, in 2040, if we're working at a hospital that doesn't get flooded out every year and that can keep working through a pandemic, that is a good outcome. And so, you know, I think that it, it's not gonna, it's not an either or scenario. I know that if the health professionals around the world deploy at scale right now, we're going to have a tremendously better world. People are going to live so many better Tuesdays, you know, in 2040 and 2050 and 2060 than if we don't. That I kind of, that's how I think about it. Mm. And so, you know, are we going to be able to prevent the like massive, you know, potential tailspin? I, I don't know. But I know that if my kid is there, 
with a revamped, you know, food system in Canada that no longer is designed to, you know, produce a tremendous amount of not very many ingredients that are mostly destined for export, but is instead centered around, you know, sustainable community-based agriculture that serves the actual food needs of the Canadian population. I want my kid to be living in that world. And those are all things we have control over. And so I think that's, you know, I, I often say that action feels better than anxiety. Mm. And the best part is, so the work itself, what the evidence shows is that coming together to, to, to talk, to connect feels good. And that every win we have along the way also feels good and is empowering and gives hope to people for the next win. And so that builds the team. They're like, hey, I want to get on that bandwagon. We're going to have some fun. We're going to do this work. It's going to feel way better than sort of like watching the train approach and not getting off the tracks, you know, like that's not going to feel good. So how about we feel good while we're doing the work? Cause we will, we'll make some good change. We'll set our kids up as best as we possibly can. We're going to look back, you know, from the ends of our career and feel really, really good about that work that we've done together. I love it, Courtney. I, I love the idea of, I love the optimism. I love the idea of, you know, us, us banding together more and more like-minded individuals pushing towards a better future. And uh, honestly, I, I, I'm leaving this conversation a lot more optimistic than I did initially. I'll tell you that much. Courtney, where can people get a hold of you? Where can they follow you? Where can they feel inspired by you? Cool. Uh, yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Corp G Howard. I have a website that's in the midst of transitioning from my brief political career back into more of an advocacy, political uh, policy, uh, research oriented um, sort of outlook. So it's drcourtneyhoward.ca. Uh, keep an eye out for the CODA action plan. I think we're going to probably um, co-launch it with the New England Journal. So that will be nice. exciting. So start thinking about your personal change stories, you know, did you manage to get anesthetics uh, phased out of your personal practice, uh, the, the ones, uh, you know, nitrous oxide or other uh, anesthetics that we know are, you know, pretty difficult for the environment? Did you manage to get a body to divest? Did you divest your own funds from fossil fuels? Have you put solar panels on your homes, decarbonized your personal transport, figured out how to get a meeting with a decision maker. And we're looking for significant wins and also learning points because I think it's just as important to celebrate, well, I went out and I did this thing and it didn't quite work, but however, I learned a bunch of stuff and we'll be giving, uh, the, the CODA people are very big on uh, good storytelling. So we will be giving points for uh, both content and creativity. And so keep an eye out for that call. And uh, I think that we're going to see actually a tremendous amount of momentum building uh, over the next couple of months and years. Dr. Howard changing the boogie. This is what we're talking about, guys. Thank, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I, I have a feeling we're going to be crossing paths pretty quick here. Yeah, I think so too. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And thank you for all this work that you're doing, building community, teaching us how to communicate, making sure that an evidence-based message gets out into the world in an entertaining and understandable <laughs> way. That is not something that as doctors we're super good at. And so thank you for learning these skills and teaching us how to do it as you go. Thank you so much. Too kind, by the way, too kind. I, I do communications training and I recognize good communicators uh, when I see them. So thank you. It's exciting. It's been super fun to chat with you. Likewise. Qualcast Nation, tell me that wasn't spectacular. Yes. 
Thanks everybody for listening. If you want to leave a comment, leave it at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube at Quadcast. Leave us a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts because it makes a huge difference in improving our visibility. Check out our shop. Go to solvinghealthcare.ca backslash shop. Check out our online conferences, specifically low-carb and, and uh, resilience conferences. Changing that boogie. Listen, thank you so much for listening, everybody, and, and uh, connect again real soon. Peace.